Good morning. Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the NIV version. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Fritz, thank you so much for reading for us. Let's go before the Lord one more time. Father, as Jeff has already said, we give you thanks for our, our sister Faye Bolayer. We thank you for her testimony. Thank you for her faith. As Jeff mentioned, I just can't count the, the number of times that I was encouraged by her. A woman of faith who loved your word and treasured it. And who allowed it to impact her life and to live in such a way that brought honor and glory to you, the Son, and the Spirit. We pray for her family as they grieve. But I pray, Father, that they would grieve as those who have hope. Because we are confident that Faye is, has been ushered into your presence and is with her King. So we thank you for her. And Father, as we continue worshiping now by turning to your word and, and opening it up to see what you would have for us, Father, I pray that we would continue to worship in our hearts and that we would rejoice at what your servant Peter is saying here by the power of your Holy Spirit. May our hearts be changed. May our lives be changed. May we be impacted in such a way that even today, even this week, we see our affections changing and our desires changing. We see that we are drawn more and more to the life of Jesus and want our lives to look like His. May that happen today as we look at your word. Father, help us to, to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. 
pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to do your will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray, amen. Well, the science of warfare has changed drastically over the course of human history. Advancements in technology have allowed military units to strike with greater speed and accuracy. But with all of the advancements, there's one constant that remains. The weight an armed soldier must carry into battle. In a popular mechanics article from 2010, titled, The Overloaded Soldier, Why U.S. Infantry Now Carry More Weight Than Ever?, The writer details how technology has not been able to address this issue, and rather than decreasing a soldier's load, in in certain cases, the amount of weight that soldiers carry has gone up. From Roman soldiers in 107 BC who would march 20 miles a day carrying 80 pounds of gear to the modern Marine Corps infantry officer who should be able to carry 152 pounds for nine miles. In order to be armed and ready for battle, soldiers have to bear a great deal of weight. The passage that we're looking at today answers the question, what must we do to live for the will of God? What must we do to live for the will of God? Surprisingly enough, the answer has to do with arming yourself. Like a soldier marching into battle, Peter wanted the Christians that he was writing to to be prepared. He wanted them to be armed. Why would Peter speak in militaristic terms? It should come as no surprise to us as Christians, that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. We're continuing in a series on 1 Peter that we're calling Living Hope. And in this letter we know as 1 Peter, the apostle is addressing Christians who are suffering. And Peter's writing to encourage these brothers and sisters in the faith. So if you're not there already, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4. This passage, in keeping with the theme of this letter, it deals with suffering in the life of the Christian. We've established that by this point. But the main question, again, that Peter is asking and answering in this passage that we're looking at this morning is how do you live for the will of God? It's interesting that Peter blends these two themes because so much of American Christianity believes that suffering and God's will are completely incompatible. Many Christians believe that if you are suffering as a Christian, you're doing something wrong or God is punishing you. Peter will blast that way of thinking out of the water and he will show, in fact, That to live for the will of God will necessarily involve suffering. Now we know that Christians can live foolishly, bringing suffering on themselves that in no way reflects living for the will of God. So that's not what we're talking about this morning. 
Peter is talking about suffering that comes as a result of living for the will of God. Christians who are living for the will of God are doing so because they are armed with a new attitude. And that's our first point this morning. Armed with a new attitude. Because they are armed with a new attitude, they have new affections. Those new affections surprise not only the Christian, but also those around him or her. That will be our second point. Amazed by new affections. Amazed by new affections. And lastly, those who abuse Christians because they have rejected Christ will give an account for their actions and unbelief. And that will be our third point, accountable in the afterlife. Accountable in the afterlife. So first, let's consider what it looks like to be armed with a new attitude. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result... They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. The French have a saying, and I'm going to butcher, right? Raison d'etre. I don't know. Close, maybe, hopefully. You don't know how many examples on YouTube I listened to, and they all differed, right? So you get the point. The, the saying, though, means reason for being. And Peter's reason for being revolved around the suffering of Christ. He opens this passage with the phrase, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. Now, up to this point in Peter's letter, he has drawn our attention to Christ's suffering no fewer than nine times. If you'd like, I think we've got a slide with the references. Jot these down, look at them later today. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1 verse 3, chapter 1 verse 11, chapter 1 verse 19, chapter 1 verse 21, chapter 2 verse 21, chapter 2 verse 23 and 24, and chapter 3 verse 18. Leave that slide up for just a minute so they can jot those down. Whether speaking of our being sprinkled with Jesus' blood or referencing his resurrection from the dead or remarking on how he how the Old Testament prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ, or showing how Jesus suffered as our example, or reflecting on how Jesus was insulted, how he bore our sins in his body on the cross, how he was wounded so that we could be healed of our sin, or rejoicing that Christ suffered unto death in order to bring us to God. Peter continually points the attention of the reader to the suffering of Christ. For Peter, you cannot overthink the suffering of Christ. There is no such thing as thinking too much about the suffering of Christ. And for the Christian, it's the same way. There is no such thing as thinking too much about the suffering of Christ. Because as we will see, it's the same attitude Jesus had towards suffering that equips us to live for the will of God. Christ's suffering did not only provide the grounds by which sinners are saved, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. His suffering made it possible for us to live for the will of God. So what must we do in order to live for the will of God? 
Peter tells us here in verse 1. He says, to arm yourselves also with the same attitude. We are to adopt the same attitude that Christ had toward suffering. And in doing so, we are arming ourselves. Peter's choice of words here, it's interesting. It's the only time that this word appears in the New Testament. The sense is to, to be prepared with proper equipment. Ephesians 6.13 comes to mind where Paul instructs, Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Or we might think of Paul's exhortation to his disciple in 2 Timothy 2.12 where he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We should not be surprised that like Paul, Peter uses language that is rooted in military imagery. After all, the Christian life is war. This war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Agreeing with Paul, Peter shows that our enemy here in verse 1 is not another person, but it is what? Sin. We'll say more about that in a minute, but if Peter uses language like arm yourselves, what does that tell us about the posture that we have to take as Christians? If you were headed into battle, let's say for example that you were parachuting into enemy territory and your commander tells you to arm yourself. Do you heed his instruction or do you reply, nah, I'm good? Of course, 10 times out of 10, you heed his instruction. You're going to make sure you have everything on you that you could possibly take. Why? Because you realize the enemy will be gunning for you and you need to be prepared. Here Peter is instructing this first century church to arm themselves because Satan and sin are ruthless. Their aim is to destroy Christians. And by extension, Peter is instructing us as 21st century Christians to arm ourselves because Satan and sin are ruthless. Again, their aim is to destroy us. But here's the thing. There's a gospel twist. A soldier arms himself or herself with pistols, with rifles, with grenades, and with knives. Notice what Peter instructs the Christian to arm themselves with. It's an attitude. There was a television show many years ago that some of you may remember called The A-Team. It was a unique, highbrow uh, action-adventure TV show. I'm just joking. If you saw it, it... Uh, it was pretty pitiful. Thousands of rounds of ammunition would be spent. And as best I can remember, nobody ever died, nor were they injured. It was remar remarkable. Um, unrealistic, but, but very wholesome. And of all the characters on the A-team, there was one whose personality outshined the rest. You may be guessing B.A. Baracus, right? Anybody remember B.A. Baracus, played by Mr. T.? If you watch the show, you'll remember uh, what set B.A. Baracus apart from the other characters. It was his attitude. He was always angry. So angry, in fact, that the initials B.A. of his name stood for bad attitude. 
And that only, not only was B.A. Baracus routinely armed with physical weapons, he was armed with an emotional weapon. Like B.A. Baracus, we can arm ourselves with an attitude of anger. Or we can arm ourselves with an attitude of apathy. Or more positively, an attitude of determination or tolerance. There are many attitudes that we can arm ourselves with, but none of these that I've mentioned will help us as Christians in our goal of living for the will of God. Peter had a specific attitude in mind when he said, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What was it? It was the attitude of Christ. Remember, Peter was writing to first century Christians who were positionally saved from their sin. It's important to remember this. It's in his instruction that he's helping them to see how to evidence their salvation. It's not in arming themselves with the attitude of Christ that they will be saved. No, they're already saved. And and Peter is encouraging them to live as people who are saved. Friends, we see God's goodness and mercy everywhere throughout Scripture. And it's in places like right here in 1 Peter 4.1 that I marvel at that goodness and mercy. Since Christ suffered, arm yourselves. In other words, if you are in Christ, His suffering has made it possible for you to arm yourself with His attitude. So what is it about Christ's attitude that once adopted reveals that we are followers of Him? Look at the end of verse 1. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. The Christian who arms himself with the attitude of Christ has adopted Christ's way of thinking about suffering. You know, at first glance, we, we might read that and think Peter is saying Christians who have adopted the attitude of Christ will no longer sin. And immediately, that presents us with a dilemma. If we're understanding Peter to say Christians who have adopted the attitude of Christ will no longer sin, we are left to conclude that either we're not saved or Peter is wrong. We as people who are following Jesus in repentance and faith, we know experientially that we fight sin all day, every day. So we read Peter's words here at the end of verse 1 and are left to conclude that Peter is wrong. But by doing that, if we come to that conclusion, we will find that we are wrong. Reading Peter's words could bring us to one of two conclusions. Either Peter is disagreeing with Paul, James, and John, or Peter means something other than Christians no longer sin. Paul declares famously in Romans 7 that there is an an internal war raging inside him. He's clear that his fight with sin is ongoing. James says we all stumble in many ways, meaning we all sin in many ways. John says in his letter to the early church, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Is Peter taking issue with the other New Testament writers? What exactly does he mean when he says whoever suffers in the body is done with sin? We're helped by considering Jesus' attitude. 
Peter is mainly interested in Christians living for the will of God, something Jesus did perfectly. So how did Jesus do it? He simply cared more about pleasing his heavenly Father than feeding his flesh. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Whether he faces temptation that was intended to bring him down or testing that was intended to build him up, Jesus' goal was to live for the will of God. One commentator puts it this way, when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. Although believers will never be totally free from sin in this life, when believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ, they show that their purpose in life is not to live for their own pleasures, but according to the will of God and for His glory. So when you are so committed to Christ that you are willing to place living for the will of God over satisfying the desires of your flesh, you are showing that sin no longer controls you like it once did. And Peter convinces us that this is what he means in verse 2. This person who has armed themselves with the same attitude as Christ does not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires. Part of our ability to exercise living for the will of God hangs on us being able to identify the difference between evil human desires and godly human desires. Do we have a good handle on the line between evil desires and godly desires? To be able to arm ourselves like Peter is instructing us to do, it is necessary that we use our minds in accordance with conviction of the Holy Spirit. Friends, our, our consciences are a precious gift from the Lord. And living for the will of God requires us to maintain our conscience by rejecting evil desires in favor of godly ones. Paul in 1 Timothy speaks of the importance of giving attention to your, your conscience. He, he talks of hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. Thanks to the generosity of my mother-in-law, we were able to throw some steaks on the smoker last week. Uh, to prepare a steak to perfection, as I was taught by my good friend who was here this morning with us, you cook it for eight minutes at a relatively low temperature and flip it until you get the internal temperature to your liking. And then you take the steaks off the smoker and you crank up the temperature as high as it will go. It takes a while for the, the smoker to climb to that temperature, but once it's there, I mean, it is screaming hot. And you throw those steaks back on for just a few minutes and then flip it quickly and you're, I'm sweating, I'm nervous. And I, I take them off and I have the finished product. I mean, steaks are not cheap, right? It's rare that we get to to smoke them like that. So why would you run the risk? Why would you take the time of, of cranking up the, the temperature on the smoker and then run the risk of overcooking them and, and burning them? Well, it's in that final process 
that you get all the flavor and texture, right? It's because you're searing the steak. Here's the thing. We can't treat our consciences like they are steaks. A seared conscience becomes desensitized and is rendered ineffective. So if you're sitting here this morning wondering about your conscience, you're wondering what it is revealing to you, you might be even asking yourself the question, how can I know if I'm saved? Peter helps us in verse 2. Have your desires changed? Are you living for the same evil human desires that you've always gratified? Or are you living for the will of God? Peter develops this even more in verses 3 and 4. The one who is armed with a new attitude, the attitude of Christ, has new affections. And these new affections will not only surprise us, They'll surprise others too, those around us. And this is our second point, amazed by new affections. Look again at verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. By saying you have spent enough time, Peter is not saying there's a measure for gauging wickedness. And the Christians that he was writing to had finally met their quotient. There's no wickedometer that reveals you've put in enough time. Speaking to you saints who are more seasoned, who have some time under your belt, I'm sure Peter's words have a certain sting to them. And hearing him say, you have spent enough time in the past if you're anything like me, the, the mental movie projector starts up, right? And you remember all of the things that you've done, all the ways that you've sinned against your Lord. And you think, oh, if I could only go back and change those things, I would do it. Like Peter's saying, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. We hear Peter's words and we realize our participation in sin has consequences. There's a certain pain that accompanies a reflection on our past and choices that we've made. For us, Peter's words make sense. And we can say in agreement, yes, in reckless pursuit of sin, I have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do. Let me take just a minute to speak to you younger followers of Christ. I'm trying to make eye contact with you in the room. Each and every one of you will face the same temptations that we have faced as your elders. And likely to cross your mind will be the thought, what will I be missing out on if I don't do what my peers are doing? You look at your friends, you look at people that you look up to, and, and you ask the question, am I missing out? Young people, I, I want you to hear me. Any seasoned saint in this room would tell you the same thing. No matter how little time you've spent doing what pagans do, it is enough time. You have to worry no longer, right? You're not missing out. The consequences are far greater than any 
minimal joy you can take from doing what the pagans do. You've spent enough time in past pursuit of sin. So choose to live for the will of God rather than doing the things that pagans choose to do. What are those things that pagans choose to do? Peter gives a list of sins here in verse 3, and he, he makes clear that these are things that pagans, again, they choose to do these things. They want to do these things. Doing them is an expression of their will. But these things are in contrast to the will of God. What are these things that Peter outlines? They are expressions of sensuality, of excess, of choosing a path that is clearly outside of God's instruction on how we should live. In verse 4, Peter says that living according to evil human desires and apart from the will of God is reckless and wild. This list from Peter is clearly not exhaustive, right? He didn't say everything that a pagan could do or has done. And so we shouldn't look at this list and, and think that we're doing pretty good because we haven't had to check off every single one of the six, right? In some measure, regardless, if you've never put a drop of alcohol to your lips or if you've lived a completely celibate life, you can still live for evil human desires rather than the will of God. What's the last vice that Peter mentions? Detestable idolatry. Every human heart trends toward idolatry. Idolatry was what caused Eve to fall, and it is the root of every sin known to man. So by arming yourself with the attitude of Christ, you begin to see that your desires have changed. And it's in breaking from the things that used to hold you captive that you realize that you're living according to the will of God. You might even find that you're amazed by the shift in your desires. The old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, describes this transformation well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Paul provides an explanation of this change for the Christians in Corinth. If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. But we're not the only ones who are surprised by this transformation. Look at verse 4. They, the pagans, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Our amazement in the change of affections that God has worked in us is good, but Peter knows that the group that you used to run with or perhaps work with or are associated with in some way they don't see your new affections as glowingly. They are surprised, astonished even. They think it's strange that you have changed so much. So much so that it's reflected in your everyday actions. Some of you have experienced this where coworkers cannot figure out why you don't do the things that you used to do. You used to cut corners. You used to make them feel good about the the corners that they were cutting, but you're not doing that anymore. And it, it's 
racking their minds. By Peter saying the pagans are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, we are reminded that the world hates holiness. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul tells of a time when Billy Graham was invited to play golf with President Ford and two PGA Tour professionals. Sproul writes this, After the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to the golfer and asked, Hey, what was it like playing with the president and with Billy Graham? And the pro unleashed a torrent of cussing and in disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And with that, he turned on his heel and stormed off heading for the practice tee. His friend followed. His friend said nothing. He sat on the bench and watched. And after a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent. He settled down. His friend said quietly, was, was Billy a little rough on you out there? And the pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. Listen to Sproul's thoughts on this. He says, astonishing. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smother the wicked man who flees when no man pursues. Luther was right. The pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven breathing down his neck. He feels crowded by holiness, even if it is only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. At the end of verse 4, we see the pagan's surprise has turned to hate. And Peter says, they heap abuse on you. Living for the will of God is costly. There's a price to pay for arming yourself with the attitude of Christ. And just as Christ suffered for being more concerned about his obeying his heavenly Father than feeding his flesh, we will suffer when living for the will of God. Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on this verse, said, How strange this world is. It speaks evil of men because they will not do evil, yet it has always been so. Those of whom the world was not worthy have been the people of whom the worldly have said he should not be allowed to live. The world's verdict concerning Christians is of little value. Living for the will of God happens when followers of Christ have armed themselves with a new attitude. When they've armed themselves with a new attitude, this attitude of Christ, they show that sin no longer has a grip on them and they'd rather please their heavenly Father. Our new affections, they will amaze us and they will amaze those who know us. And although you may experience suffering because of your identification with Christ, those who persecute you will be accountable in the afterlife. This is our third point, accountable in the afterlife. Look once again at verse 5. But they, the pagans, will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
A few weeks ago, we saw in 1 Peter 2, 23, Peter say this, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We know that God the Father plays some role in the final judgment. However, Scripture often identifies the Lord Jesus as the one who will judge the living and the dead. There's a certain poetic justice when you realize that God the Father knows about our suffering. God the Son has experienced our suffering. Those who have heaped abuse on us will have to give an account to Jesus, who, like us, experienced firsthand the suffering. For the Christian, this is comforting. For the pagan, this should be terrifying. The judge has not only read the legal brief, he's a victim of the crime. If you've never repented of your sin and believed on Christ Jesus alone to be saved, Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is warning us here of what every pagan has in store for them when the Lord Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. The righteous judge is ready. He's completely prepared. He is completely willing. He's completely able to execute judgment on mankind. No one escapes this judgment. No pagan escapes this judgment. Not even those who have already died. Everyone will give an account. Pagans reject the good news of Jesus, and for that, they will give an account. But for those who have heard and received the gospel, Peter ends this passage with hope. Look once more at verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but living according to God in regard to the Spirit. So we have seen some tricky verses over the past few weeks. Last week, what Pastor Jeff dealt with, we'll talk about it in just a second, but, but this passage here in, in verse 6 is no different, right? We read this and think, what is Peter getting at? But I think if it seems tricky in the beginning, in light of all that he's said up until this point, we can understand what Peter is saying. So when Peter says the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, we wonder if he's saying that someone can have a second chance at salvation after dying. In other words, has the gospel been preached to them after they died? Is, is that what Peter is saying? Last week, Pastor Jeff showed us in 1 Peter 3.19 that the better understanding of this is that the, the, the Christ proclaimed a message of triumph and victory over sin to the spirit world after his death on the cross and before his resurrection. As such, Peter was not saying that Jesus preached the gospel to those who had rejected Christ during their lifetime. In addition to our understanding of 1 Peter 3.19, what other evidence do we have that there is no such thing as a second chance at salvation? Peter's just said in verse 5 that both the living and the dead will be judged. In Luke 16.26, we learn from a parable of Jesus, a great chasm 
has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Hebrews 9.27, which we considered last week, says, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. The clear teaching of Scripture is that you must respond to the call of Christ in this life. So, if Peter is not teaching about a second chance for salvation, then what is he saying? In light of the second half of the verse, and in keeping with everything Peter said in verses 1 to 5, he's offering hope to Christians by helping them to look beyond the grave. Having just drawn attention to the coming judgment for those who reject Christ, those who have received him by responding to the preached gospel, they will continue to live by being raised from the dead. Friends, this is glorious news. Peter is not avoiding the painful reality that even Christians die when he says, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body. Just as we suffer in the body, as we saw in verse 1, we die in the, in the body according to verse 6. However, just as in verse 2, those who are armed with the attitude of Christ, they live for the will of God, those who die, having heard and received the gospel, will live according to God in regard to the Spirit. So Christian, take heart. Death is not the end for us. Like Christ, our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will live. We can't lose sight of the fact that Peter was offering encouragement to Christians in light of their present and future suffering. So I, I completely understand that, that if you've never responded to Jesus' generous offer of salvation, this is no encouragement to you at all. Samuel Say, a pro-life activist and writer, tweeted out the following this week. How gracious is God. He gives the average sinner three billion heartbeats before he summons them for judgment. What a beautiful perspective on the graciousness of God. If you're a follower of Christ who has armed themselves with the attitude of Christ to live for the will of God, God's graciousness will compel you to continue arming yourself. But if you're not a follower of Christ, my gracious God, He gives the average sinner three billion heartbeats before He summons you for judgment. Will you respond to him today? Let's pray. Father, I am humbled by your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How you sent your Son to this earth who lived among the people who hated him, who punished him, who abused him, 
you did that so that in light of all of that, we would see how he still didn't sin. He was worthy to be the sin offering for sinful humanity. And in going to the cross, he took our sin upon himself and he died the death that we just simply could not die. And offering his perfect life as our atonement for sin, he gave us the opportunity to participate in this forgiveness that you freely offer through Christ. Father, for those who are in this room who identify with Jesus in his suffering and who are arming themselves with the same attitude as Christ, may you help us this week live such a way that others would know that person is living for the will of God. Father, if there's someone here this morning that has not repented of their sin and believed in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin, having heard your word this morning and having heard this presentation of the gospel, this issuing of call from Christ to repent and believe, Father, would you draw them to faith in Christ? Would you open their eyes and their ears? Would you give them the ability to repent of their sin and believe on Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin? So that they would not have to stand before King Jesus who is coming to judge the living and the dead. May they be able to say with others in this room who have trusted in Christ alone. Their life is hidden with Christ. And that they do not have to worry because they are trusting in Christ alone. As we turn to this table of remembrance, our Lord's table, Father, I pray that we would inspect our hearts Pray that we would inspect our minds. Father, if the Holy Spirit finds any fault in us, pray, Father, that you would help us to repent. And pray, Father, that if we have an issue with another brother or sister in this room, that you would help us to seek them out and to ask forgiveness. Pray that we would not take the cup or eat the bread in an unworthy manner, but only after inspecting our hearts. So, Father, I pray that we would not only introspectively look at ourselves, but that we would look to Christ and rejoice in what He has done. May this table not be one that is only somber, but may it be one of rejoicing. as we remember what Jesus has accomplished for us, for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.